Well, good morning, church family. It's great to be with you on this last Sunday in January. Next Sunday, February 5th, we'll resume our study of the life of Jesus through the lens of Luke's gospel. And uh, with the start of this study, our small groups will begin meeting at various times and locations throughout the week. And if you're not yet in a small group, I want to encourage you after the service is over, when you walk out those double doors right there, you'll see our resource center. Stop by there, have a conversation with Natalie Jungles, who's over there, or one of the other volunteers who will be serving there. What we see in the New Testament is that God really intends for church to be more than an event that we would attend on the weekend. It's also his desire that church would be a community that we're a part of, and we want to help you go deeper in Christian community and, and find a place where you would be known and cared for and encouraged and spurred on and prayed for and all those one another's in scripture would be lived out. And so please, if you're not yet in a group, uh, would, you, would you take that step after the service is over? Well, if you are a thinking person, chances are at some point in your life, you're going to ask yourself the question, how can I live a meaningful life? What would it look like for me to live a meaningful life? Now, if life is random, if we're just the result of a chance encounter of molecules, you'd be hard-pressed to claim that there's any real meaning to life. It would be left to each person sort of just to decide for themselves what would give their life purpose. But if our existence and that of the world around us has anything to do with the creative and loving initiative of an all-powerful, all-loving, sovereign being we'll call God, then we would need to look to God to know the purpose of our existence. Uh, the same way that um, you might want to look to Steve Jobs to know the purpose of an iPhone. I mean, if you had that very first iPhone and you thought, well, you know, there's a there's a nail that needs to go into the wall. Maybe I could use this to pound it in there. Um, you could try that, but that wouldn't be the purpose for which the iPhone was created. In a similar way, if God exists, what that means is that when our lives come to an end, we don't simply get to conduct a, an internal review of our time on earth and then grade our own paper, so to speak. We're not able to assess for ourselves whether or not we rocked it. The words, well done, good and faithful servant, would be a judgment only God would be qualified to make because he's our creator. And in order to live a meaningful life, we would need to serve God's purposes. Uh, King David is a great example of this. Scripture tells us that for David, after he had served, the purpose of God in his own generation fell asleep and was laid with his fathers. Notice it, it doesn't say that David, after he had served his own purposes, or David, after he had served the purposes of his friends and family, or David, after he had served the purposes of his board of directors or his employees or anything else, it says after he had served God's purposes, that he, he departed. Anybody else think it would be a good thing if the same could be said about you when you reach the end of your years? Wouldn't you want to meet your creator knowing that to the best of your ability, 
you had served his purposes and not your own. Now, I, I think we all know that, that God didn't put us on this earth to binge watch Netflix or to cheer on our favorite sports team or to take amazing vacations or to perfect our golf game. These are all great gifts that God gives us for our enjoyment, but they're not the purpose for our existence, are they? Scripture tells us the, uh, the purpose for which uh, we're here in a broad sense. We're, we're created to glorify God. We're created to reflect His likeness. Uh, we're created to, to tell others about the good news that we have in Jesus Christ. These are broad purposes, and uh, I believe at the same time, though, that God can also give His people a more specific purpose. Uh, we see several examples of this in Scripture. Uh, one such example is found in the book of Nehemiah. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to turn with me there. In the Old Testament, it's about halfway in, right before the wisdom literature of Psalms and Proverbs and before all the major and minor prophets. But chronologically, Nehemiah is actually one of the last books uh, to be written in the Old Testament along with Haggai and Malachi. Now, by way of context, God has allowed the Babylonians to conquer Judah, the, the southern kingdom of Israel, on account of the persistent idolatry and disobedience of his people. And so the people living there are led off into captivity in successive waves. The very first wave is Daniel from the book of Daniel. The final wave occurs in 587 or 586 BC when the Babylonians come and uh, they, they destroy Jerusalem, they knock over the temple, they set everything on fire. Uh, but then about 47 years later, in 539 B.C., the Babylonians are eclipsed by the Persians, and the Persians are now uh, the dominant world power. Cyrus the Great uh, conquers Babylon, and under Cyrus's leadership, the first Jews are allowed to return to their homeland to rebuild the temple, and you can read about this in the book of Ezra. And if we fast forward from that point in time, about 93 years, to the year 445 BC, the Persians are still the dominant world power, and the stage is now set for us to open the book of Nehemiah. So here we are, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanina, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire." I want us to check out what happens here. Nehemiah is living in Susa, which today is located in the southwestern corner of Iran. And yet he's genuinely interested in the people who are living in a city over a thousand miles away. In a day and age where there isn't trains or interstates or uh, real-time social media updates. Ever wonder why that is? Why, why does he care about what's happening in Jerusalem? 
Well, it's because he's walking with the Lord. And because he's walking with the Lord, Nehemiah has begun to share God's heart. And he is attuned to this situation where there is a disconnect between, between God's desired work of restoration and the status quo. There's a disconnect here. How can we fulfill God's purposes for our lives? How can we serve his purposes in our generation? Well, here's what we see. It starts with us walking with the Lord, with us cultivating that relationship. Because Nehemiah has a relationship with the Lord, he has begun to care about the same things that God's care about. And when you enter into a relationship with someone, that, that sort of thing happens. I mean, just as a silly example, maybe that some of you can relate to, uh, my wife graduated from Chapel Hill, and um, I didn't. But guess who else um, likes cheering on the Tar Heels now? I do. Maybe some of you can relate to that. Maybe if it's not a spouse, maybe you send your kid off to college somewhere, and all of a sudden you didn't go to school there, but you start caring about that sports team. Why is that? Well, it's an overflow of the relationship. And, and because Nehemiah is in fellowship with God, he asks for an update on how God's people in Jerusalem are doing the same way that I might ask for an update on how the Tar Heels did if they were playing in a big game and I was unable to watch it. Well, the update that Nehemiah receives causes him to recognize that this situation isn't what it should be. He sees the circumstance and he says, God, I, I know this isn't what you have in mind because I've read your word. I know what you said. I, I remember what you, you told Jeremiah the prophet to say to the exiles. He says, for I, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And you know what? The same sort of thing can happen today as we walk with the Lord, as we commune with him through prayer and time in his word, What's going to happen is we're going to begin to love what he loves. Yeah, we won't be as wrapped up in our own little world. We'll begin to gain his perspective. We'll start to live outside ourselves. And like Nehemiah, we should begin to ask questions about issues that God cares about. We'll wonder about children in the foster care system. We'll wonder about the incarcerated. We'll, we'll care about people who lack basic necessities like food and water. We'll care about the persecuted church and the unborn and the oppressed and those who are walking in darkness that, that have never had the opportunity to hear the name of Jesus. And as we ask these questions, what we discover might distress us. God might burden us. It might cause us to say, this situation isn't right. It, it is not on earth as it should be in heaven. God, your, your desired work of redeeming and restoring and renewing, it doesn't seem to be happening. Now, now look with me at Nehemiah's response as he notices this disconnect between God's desire for Jerusalem and the status quo. Here's what we see. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. In short, Nehemiah's response is prayer. And we could amplify that by noticing the manner in which Nehemiah prays. He prays first. 
He's upset by the circumstance. He's burdened by it. But his first course of action isn't to fire off a tweet or to text all of his friends or to draft a letter to the editor or, or some other elected official. He doesn't hike up his britches and sort of pound his fist on the table and declare that he's going to do something about this. In humility, he recognizes his own limitations. And so he begins by appealing to God. You know, sometimes in our zeal, we can sort of ready, fire, aim. And what happens? Well, we, we might mean well, but I, I think it can be like uh, Moses going out and he sees the, the Egyptian who's beating the Hebrew slave and he takes action. He means well, but if we aren't aligned with the way God is wanting to work, we're not going to get the results that we desire, what we're hoping for. Notice that Nehemiah prays first. We also see that he, he prays persistently. He says, I, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying. You get the sense that this wasn't a one-and-done prayer. In fact, we know this because... As we turn to chapter 2, we're given another timestamp. So at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that it was the month of Kislev in the 20th year of Artaxerxes when Nehemiah received the initial report. And now when we turn to chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence Commentators uh, who know far more about the Persian calendar than I do, uh, they say that this would have been a span of four months. So it's, it's four months of praying and seeking alignment with God before Nehemiah ever begins to take action. If we want to lean into fulfilling God's purpose for our lives, then we need to think about prayer the same way rock climbers think about putting protection in the rock. Now, it's been years since I've climbed, but I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, I used to live in Colorado, and I like to rock climb. And if you want to rock climb safely, you know, you, you don't do like Alex Honnold. You know, you don't just kind of like strap on your chalk bag and say, all right, up I go. That's a bad idea if you, if you uh, appreciate longevity in life. Instead, what you do is you have these little pieces of gear that you carry with you, and you, you stick them in little imperfections in the rock in such a way that if you were to fall down, that you would weight that piece of protection in such a way that it would cause it to be wedged even deeper into the rock, which would support your weight. Now, if you're the lead climber and you do fall off the rock, guess how far you're going to fall? You're going to go twice the distance from your last piece of protection, plus whatever give is in the rope. So you're going to take a pretty good whipper. Now, when you're the lead climber, how often do you want to put that protection into the rock? You know the general rule of thumb? Here's what they'll teach you if you go to rock climbing school. The rule of thumb is early and often. <laughs> you like that? I think Nehemiah takes the same approach when it comes to prayer. He prays early and often. His first thought is to pray, and then he keeps on praying. He labors in prayer. 
And, and it's worth noting not only the manner in which Nehemiah prays, but also what fuels his prayer. What, what drives Nehemiah to his knees are two things. One, we could say it's his deep understanding of who God is. And then the second one is his knowledge of God's word, or we could say his knowledge of God's promises. I want you to look with me at how this colors the the content of his prayer. In verse 5, we see this. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah begins his prayer by recognizing the one to whom he is directing his prayer. He's Lord. This is also the word Yahweh. It's, It's the personal name that God gave Moses for himself at the burning bush. We also see that he's the, he's the God of heaven. In other words, there's no other gods. Nehemiah acknowledges God's greatness and awesomeness. We use the word awesome pretty regularly nowadays. It's used to describe all sorts of things, like from a good meal to a cool trick on a skateboard. But really, it means awe-inspiring. It's, it's the impression that his total character leaves on all who encounter him. Nehemiah also recognizes qualities of God, like his faithfulness and his ability to see and hear all that's going on. And I think this is a good pattern for us to follow. We have a Monday prayer time in the community room. It's, it's open to everyone. Uh, I see Faye, who, who regularly prays with us there. We pray from noon to one every Monday. Would love to have you join us sometime. But we, we usually begin with adoration. And it's not because we believe that God is some capricious being and if we sort of like butter him up on the front end. Or, you know, if we, if we, if we stroke his ego to begin with, he's going to be more likely to indulge our requests on the back end. That's not the reason at all. We, we begin with adoration because we need to remind ourselves of who God is. And what he's like. And when we do that, we begin to gain a proper perspective. Our our situation and our circumstances that can feel so overwhelming, what happens is they get right-sized. And the presence of an infinite and and all-powerful and loving God. If you want to strengthen your prayer life, just as you're reading Scripture... Maybe just make a note off to the side of different times you see a a different name for God or a different attribute for God. And then as you pray, begin by praising God for for those things. As Nehemiah continues his prayer, we see it's also shaped by a knowledge of God's word. Beginning now in in verse 8, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, 
Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Nehemiah is reminding God of promises he made in the book of Deuteronomy, especially chapters 28 and 30. Nehemiah here, he doesn't ask God for, for anything that God hasn't already promised. It, it, it would seem that what really motivates Nehemiah to come before God and, and to make these petitions is just the promises that God's already given. And like Nehemiah, when God burdens us for a specific situation, when he begins to kind of stir that in our heart, we can pray based on what God has promised in his word. As an example of this, if, if you're praying for our unreached people group or maybe people that live in a cold country that, that don't have the opportunity to hear the gospel, you, you might remind God of what he's revealed in, in 1 Timothy 2.14. You could say, God, I know you desire all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so I'm coming to you on this basis. Or maybe you're like Tina Kerlack in our church and God has given you a burden for victims of human trafficking. Or maybe you have a burden for those who are being oppressed in some way. Well, we could come before God and we could pray Psalm 10, verses 17 and 18. Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. That's what you've promised, God. You will strengthen their heart and you will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. You could go on and say, God, we, we see what you say in Psalm 11. That, that you hate the wicked and the one who loves violence. Or maybe um, you're like Stuart and Vicki Mock. And, 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 and you have a heart for the orphans. Uh, you could pray Psalm 68.5. You just remind God, this is what you tell us, God, that your, your father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God and his holy habitation. And you come before him reminding him of this. I think of, um, there's a men's small group that meets on Thursdays. I'll call it the, the, the session small group. And um, they seem to have a, a, a special heart for the people of Malawi and they're facing a natural disaster there. There's, there's, there's famine. Or maybe you're burdened for people that are also um, going through some natural disaster. The people of Ukraine who are the victims right now of a, of a terrible war. We might come to God on the basis of what he's revealed in Psalm 34. And we come praying and interceding and we say, God, I, I think of what you've told us, that you're near to the brokenhearted. Thank you that you save the crushed in spirit. We see that Nehemiah responds to, to his particular situation, the, the, the challenge that he sees with prayer, with God's promises. And as he does, watch what happens. The result is, is that it leads to partnership with God. Look with me at the end of this prayer. This is verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. 
Having prayed about this burden that God has given him, we see Nehemiah comes to a place where he realizes God might want to leverage his position to bring about change. He senses that God wants to enlist him in the work of restoring Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah ends by asking for favor or mercy in the sight of this man, who, by the way, turns out to be the king of all of Persia. I just think that's a really interesting way to refer to the, to the guy who's essentially like sultan, you know, emperor of the known world. He's just this man. It would seem that Nehemiah is far more concerned with um, the power of God than he is with the power of the king, and he's far more dependent upon God. But here's the point. As we begin to pray, God can nudge us, and God can begin to show us how he wants us to be involved in his redemptive work. He begins to reveal to us uh, his purpose for our lives, and we begin to see how we're in a position to be used by him. Now, spoiler alert here. Nehemiah does experience the favor of the king. He's, he's granted a leave of absence to head off to Jerusalem and to begin a rebuilding effort. And as he goes, he has an armed escort for the king. He has a letter of support from the king. He even has resources from the king. And uh, Nehemiah arrives, and he, he still encounters some opposition. But God uses Nehemiah to rebuild that wall. And it happens in record time. It's rebuilt in a staggering, in a, in a miraculous 52 days. How is that possible? Well, here's what Nehemiah attributes his success to. Twice in chapter 2, we read something along these lines. He says, the good hand of my God was upon me. God's hand was upon him. Because Nehemiah takes the time to pray and simply doing work for God, he's able to do the work of God. There's a distinction between the two. If we don't take the time to pray, we can rush out and we can do good things and it's going to be work for God, but it might not be the work of God. We might not get the results we're hoping for. On the other hand, if we take the time to pray and we seek to align ourselves with the ways that God is wanting to move, we can get caught up in the work of God. And God does the heavy lifting and he goes before us and the results are completely different. We get to just sit back and say, wow. The only explanation for this is that the hand of God must have been upon me because he, he just sort of caused it all to unfold. You know, there's something else about Nehemiah that impresses me. If you remember from verse 11, we're told that he was cupbearer to the king. Now, in case that sounds appealing to any of you and you decide to get on Indeed later this afternoon, that's a job that no longer exists. It's a career field you won't find today. But in that day, uh, cupbearer to the king was a high office. In, in addition to tasting wine to ensure it contained no poison, a cupbearer would have had direct access to the king. It was an influential position. It was the, the modern-day equivalent of a cabinet position. And, and the king most likely would have sought Nehemiah's advice on important matters. And for Nehemiah to have reached this position, it was a significant achievement. Now, do you think maybe and Nehemiah had a 
comfortable life carved out for himself there in Susa. I'm guessing Nehemiah didn't lack for status or comfort. He was probably surrounded by the finer things in life. You can't help but wonder if, uh, as Nehemiah started praying for Jerusalem, if he was expecting God to intervene in this situation through some other means. Nehemiah could have rightly reasoned that his direct involvement in anything happened in Jerusalem would have placed his job in jeopardy. Because according to Ezra 4.23, the book that comes right before Nehemiah, a few years earlier, the same king, Artaxerxes, had issued a, a decree to stop work on rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. And so for Nehemiah to come and maybe make a request that was contrary to the, to the king's wishes, that could prove to be a bit of a, a career killer. It could have resulted in demotion or worse. So you can't help but wonder if Nehemiah is initially expecting that God would have come and answered his prayer through some other means. If Nehemiah was just kind of hoping to to have a behind-the-scenes role. But as he prays, God moves Nehemiah's heart. At one point in the book, Nehemiah explains his actions by saying this, then God put it in my heart. God put it in his heart. And when God gave him guidance about how he was to be personally involved, Nehemiah said yes. And when he did, he had the great privilege of partnering with God to accomplish God's redemptive work. Now let me ask you this. Do you ever think Nehemiah regretted saying yes to what God put in his heart? Do you think Nehemiah, as he neared the end of his life, that he ever thought to himself, man, you know, I wish I hadn't heeded those prompts God gave me. Then then I could have spent more time strolling through the gardens of Susa. Man, I, you know, I just, I don't know if I should have listened to God. Because, like, I had to miss two or three of the king's annual galas. Ah, uh, here's what I'm thinking. My guess is, is that Nehemiah reflected on his life. He was filled with a sense of wonder of being used by God to accomplish God's purposes, to be a part of that renewal in Jerusalem. And he wouldn't trade that for, for any polo match or royal party or walk around a botanical garden. There's nothing that can compare to the joy that comes from being used by God to accomplish his work. I'm reminded of what the missionary Jim Elliott said. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And my hope for all of us in 2023 is that we will deepen our relationship with God and we'll allow him to call our attention to circumstances where the, the status quo needs to change. And that we'll then we'll lean into the purposes that God has for us. That we'll be attuned to the specific ways that he might want to use us to bring renewal. To usher in his redemptive grace. To, to, to go from here with a mission. 
As we conclude, I just want to take a moment for us to invite God to speak to us individually, the same way he spoke to Nehemiah, for us to just sort of have a little space for us to welcome his voice into our ears. And so if you would, would you just bow your head with me for a moment? God, we come before you. Because like King David and Nehemiah, we want to serve your purposes in our generation. We want to be used by you. We don't want our time on this earth to be consumed primarily with fulfilling our own purposes. We don't want to miss out on the privilege and joy of of partnering with you in your work. Because we know that what you would have for us is far better than anything we could dream up for ourselves. You know the purposes for which we were created. We pray that you would reveal to us the circumstances and the situations that are breaking your heart. God, right now we just want to listen. In this moment of silence, would you speak to each one of us individually and let us know if there's any situation in need of your grace that you would want us to be more attuned to. Lord, we invite you to speak. We're holding ourselves before you. If you sense God is nudging you in any way, I just want to encourage you not to let that thought pass and just jot down what he might be communicating the back of your bulletin put down a word or a phrase God you also know that we can be anxious people we take the good gifts that you give us the ways that you bless us and we can hold on too tightly we can be afraid to risk. And where we're clinging to things that we'll eventually lose anyway and 
missing out on the privilege of partnering with you. We want to come before you and ask the question, what do I have that you might want to leverage? For Nehemiah, it was his position. God, was it for me? Is it my resources? Is it my time? Is it my home? Is it my position? Is it my talents? Lord, if there's anything we're holding on to that you would want us to leverage, that you would want us to risk, to partner with you in your work, share that with us now. God, help us to say yes to you the way that Nehemiah did. And for us to experience the great privilege and the joy of fellowship with you, of abiding in your will, and of doing your work for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.